I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus in the 33rd chapter. Exodus chapter 33. We'll begin reading in verse 17. Exodus 33, verse 17. Read to the end of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I shall take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need the help of your Spirit today, that we would rightly see and understand this, your word. Open our eyes. Give us listening ears. Make us sensitive to the work of your spirit, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have considered the reality that it's possible, in fact, not just possible, but is commanded of us as an essential to know God. We have pondered the Trinity, God's self-existence or aseity. We've looked into His unchangeableness, that is, His immutability, and His attributes of omniscience. He is everywhere. Excuse me, He knows all things, omniscience, omnipresence. He is fully present everywhere, omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Now, all of this may seem strange to those who have no love for the Lord and who are sold out to a modern view of self. Why would you spend time on such a thing? Part of that flows out of the fact that there are a number of mistaken views of God. One which Packer, J.I. Packer, saw 50 years ago, still current today, the Santa Claus view of God, that God is just ready to do whatever you ask him to do, and if you're good, you get what you want. Now, why is it that people's views of God are so confused? Well, for one thing, people have gotten into the practice of following private religious hunches rather than learning of God from his word. What we think, what we feel, becomes definitional. Secondly, People think all religions are equal and equivalent. But there's actually no true difference in religion. 
And thirdly, people have ceased to recognize the reality of their own sinfulness and that their sinfulness even affects their thinking. It's what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. That is, that our sin skews how we process data, how we think about the world. We don't really recognize that we have a built-in antagonism towards God. The Apostle Paul, teaching the Romans about God's purpose of grace in both the Jews and the Gentiles, includes a phrase that we should keep in mind. Note then, Paul says, the kindness or goodness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness, God's goodness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Or earlier in the same book, do you not recognize, O oh man, it is the kindness, the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Now see, our faith in God is such as we believe that nobody here today is here by happenstance. Nobody's here today by accident. You are here by the appointment of God. Now, knowing what some of you probably went through to get here today, it may not feel so much by appointment. It may have felt like, why in the world are we going? We're all mad at each other by the time we got to the car and got everybody lined up and in here and then realized we'd forgotten things and left them on the counter and had to go back. I'm not talking about my world this morning, by the way. At least not this morning. But God had purpose in bringing you here today. Understand, my friend, if you do not know Him, you can know Him. And you can know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is a way of salvation. His name is Jesus. But yes, people have gotten into this practice of following private religious hunches rather than actually learning of God from His Word. It's kind of like a bipolar view of God. On the one hand, you have folks who think about God only in terms of kindness, or better yet, that He's easygoing. They believe in a God created from their religious hunches. But it's not just pagans, but even in churches, even evangelical churches, that somehow God's not only concerned about sin or judgment. He's all love all the time in every way. And then we get to define how that actually works out in life. The other side are those who in reaction to such a soft view go full tilt the other direction. Often the God of fundamentalism is a fundamentally angry God ready to destroy at a moment's notice. He's always angry and unless you get rid of your, uh, what, your cigarettes, your makeup, your beer, turn off the radio, get a suit or a dress, get a King James Bible and learn to be angry too, you're in trouble. The God of Scripture is not a bipolar God. He is just, righteous, holy, loving, good. Today I would have us consider as we look at what it means to know God, this attribute of God called God's goodness. Now what is it that we're talking about when we emphasize the goodness of God. The word goodness, or good, has suffered a great deal at our hands. Uh, 
We use good in a host of ways. And many of those ways are, shall we say, a little feeble. Well, maybe remarkably feeble compared to what we mean when we talk about the goodness of God. I mean, some of you that have children have been emphasizing of late, Christmas, you better be good. And the implication thereof is that goodness is purely about a behavioral thing. Now, parents, I shall not undercut you here, but if your view of the goodness of God is nothing more than proper behavior, you've really got a bereft, anemic understanding of goodness. Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, called it, talked about it this way. This beautiful word, good, or goodness, kindness, is the general category within which God's love and grace, mercy, pity, compassion, long-suffering, kindness, and other expressions of His tender and fatherly character are placed. The goodness of God, said Tozer, is that which disposes Him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. Goodwill toward men. Does that sound vaguely familiar? He's tender-hearted and of a quick sympathy. His unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he's inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. My friends, what we're contending is simply this. God is essentially and eternally good. God is essentially, it is his essence, and eternally always good. Now, how to look at this? My friends, I'm here to tell you that there are mountains of literature to be read on the subject of the attributes of God, and at least one of the mountain ranges includes the mountain, the goodness of God. It is a huge subject, far more than I can cover, but let me at least give you a glimpse, and let's use this incident in the life of Moses and Israel to give us that glimpse. We begin with Moses' request. Please show me your glory, he says in verse 18. Now, what has gone on here? What have we walked into as we walk into this 33rd chapter? Well, what we walk into is that Moses has been on the mountain talking to God because Israel said, don't let him talk to us anymore or we're going to die. You go talk to him. So Moses goes up on the mount. And in verse 1 of chapter 32, you read these words. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Now, brethren, are you following this? There at the foot of Sinai, Almighty God is manifest on the mountain in cloud and smoke and thunder. 
Moses has gone up on the mountain and they've decided he is A-W-O-L. And we need help. And you know the story. Moses comes off the mountain. He breaks the tablets of stone. He takes the idol, burns it, grinds it, destroys it, has the people drink it in water. And the Lord, the Lord says, I'll, I'm done. I'll just go with you, Moses. <laughs> Enough of these people. And Moses has pled. He has pled for the Lord to forgive, to be compassionate. And he pleads with the Lord to go with him. In that 33rd chapter, verse 14, he, he, he had asked for the Lord to go with them, and the Lord says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses, it's Moses speaking now, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I've ever found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? My brothers and sisters, keep in mind, Anytime you read the Old Testament, you're saying, well, now why the dietary laws? And why the laws about certain days? And why all these sacrifices? And why the stuff about not letting an ox and a donkey uh, be yoked together? And why this stuff about clothing? Why is all this? Because in everything, Israel was to demonstrate by every aspect of their life, they were different than everybody else. And they were different because they had a relationship with the one true God. Don't get so lost in the details that you miss the very glorious idea of distinctiveness to be God's people. And now Moses has heard this promise of the Lord. In verse 17, the Lord says, This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And that's when Moses said, please show me your glory. The Lord hears his prayer. What is it he's requesting? He has been captured, called by the great and glorious covenant Lord. He has met him through the means of a bush that burned but didn't burn up. He has witnessed the miraculous acts of God to lead Israel out of Egypt and has broken the power of the superpower of Pharaoh and Egypt. He has been on the mountain, received the tablets of stone, the basis for the relationship between Israel and the Lord. But Moses longs for more. He longs to see God. He longs, in a sense, to have an intimacy with God. He does not yet have. Please, show me your glory. Christian, may I ask you the question, has that been the cry of your own heart? Show me your glory. 
let us acknowledge that for us it is different because of the terms of the new covenant and because Jesus has come. John in his gospel will reference the miracle at Cana of Galilee when Jesus takes water and converts it into wine and he'll use this assessment. Thus did his disciples see his glory and put their faith in him. You and I behold the glory of God, Paul says, in the face of Jesus Christ. It is in our knowledge of him that we behold this glory. But what is it that we mean by that glory? And what is it that Moses asks for? And what is it that the Lord answers him with? Consider this if you think about it. This is the basis for one of the greatest hymns of all history. Augustus Top, ladies, Rock of Ages. Have you pondered the lines from that hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me? Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself. Moses cries out, Lord, let me see your glory. And the Lord hides him in a rock. Left in a rock. You know, it makes you wonder maybe a few years later, a prophet named Elijah stood on a mountain, cave, and the Lord spoke with him. So, what is it that God answers? I would see your glory. I will make all my goodness. Now pay attention to that phrase. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. Which tells you something. When he says the goodness is connected to the name, the Lord, the I am, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I show mercy, but you cannot see my face and live. I will make all my goodness pass before you. The glory of God to us as His people is His generosity, His kindness, His mercy, His love. It expresses this simple reality that he would make his people happy. He would bless and preserve and care for his people. 
In fact, a biblical way of doing this is to say, and I'll quote Packer here, you ready? God is good to all in some ways, but He's good to some in all ways. God is good to all in some ways, but He's good to some in all ways. So how do we think of this? One old theologian, Turretin, said that God shows His love in at least three ways. First, in His goodness. And we're talking about the goodness of God here, right? The kindness, the mercy of God. First, in a general way, to all of creation. When God looks at what He creates, what's His assessment at the end of each day? And He looked, and behold, it was good. Why is it good? Because He made it, and from Him comes only good. So each day as God creates, He makes the declaration of His creation, it is good. When He finally gets done and He's made man, what is His declaration on day number six? He looked at all He had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. This is like the 36th Psalm, verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. There is a general kindness, goodness of God to all of His creation. Now, may I point out that ultimately, the saving work of Jesus Christ will redeem not only the people He has chosen, but will ultimately undo the effects of sin, burn up the heavens and earth with fervent heat, and there shall be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation that God will be able to look on once again and declare it is very good. There is a cosmic element to Christ's redemption. The second way of seeing God's benevolence, kindness, goodness is a special thing to human beings. It's called common grace is how we term it. It's Acts 14, 17 where the words written, yet he did not leave himself without witness. This is Paul and Barnabas. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's what Jesus said when he said, the Lord makes it rain on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on all kinds of people. God has a kindness, a goodness to all sorts of people, even very wicked people. Have you noticed how folks want to condemn God when they see something bad happen, but they never take a moment to give thanks for all the good that He has done. They're alive. They got food to eat. They got a job. Things are going fairly well. It's not that there are no troubles, but here's the way we look at it. We are such selfish, self-centered critters that we look at God and we grouse about what we think we ought to get and don't get and never for a moment give thanks for His kindness. God has a general kind graciousness to all human beings. 
And then there's what Turretin called the most special kindness, goodness of God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, the love he sets on his people is a display of the goodness, the kindness of God. Now let me give you some terms for the ways we think of this, and maybe this will help. We would use the term grace, we'd use the term mercy, and further we'd think about God's providential love. So think of it this way. We talk about grace. Now what is it that is meant by the word grace? I still think one of the best book titles that has ever been in my lifetime was Mike Horton's first book, Putting Amazing Back Into Grace. If you've not read that little book, it's worthwhile. It's extraordinarily Presbyterian at the end. But other than that, it is really, really good. Putting amazing back into grace. What he points out is we have acted like in our own era that grace isn't all that glorious. We have missed that grace, grace is not demanded. Grace is nothing that God must give. Grace is undeserved love given to objects or persons who have in no way earned, merited, or even asked for it. That's grace. Grace is God setting His love on enemies and turning them into not merely friends, but children. Grace is God finding us in our rebellion and being loving toward us. Psalm 106.1, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It is the testimony of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. But when God, who set me apart from birth, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, I did not seek out any man. But rather, he received this grace. God rescues him. Grace is an expression of the goodness, the kindness, the mercy of God. Mercy is another aspect of it. It is not only grace, it's also mercy. Now, grace is kindness to the undeserving. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is love and kindness for the miserable. Mercy has reference to the experience of the one upon whom mercy is granted. It is looking at somebody who's in desperate, dark, horrid trouble and rescuing them. Now, folks, all the time we're called upon for mercy. Shows up all, I mean, you talk, it has been turned into an extraordinary marketing ploy, right? I, look, I can't tell you how many times I look up and see uh, an ad for helping poor animals, and you're always shown these poor dogs or cats or whatever they are in the awfulest of circumstances. And if you've got a heart at all, it tugs at your heartstrings. And I sit there and think, oh, gee, I want to help. And it's designed to do that, right? And the local animal shelter puts out their ads. 
Oh, they show you pictures of cute little puppies and kittens and tell you their stories. And it's, it's designed to evoke mercy. We'll even use it to do aid for others who are hurt or injured or have suffered from natural disaster. My friends, do you understand all of that flows from a God who has mercy? But I say to you, Jesus did love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Acts 14, 17, he didn't leave himself without witness. He did give you rain. Or 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God shows mercy. Some years ago, I had a conversation with a dear friend whose wife was a nurse in an ER here in Springfield. And this is back in college, and you know, college students were always having very important discussions back then about stuff that mattered, right? You're in the world of academia, and you're asking all the tough questions that are supposed to be asked, and other people aren't smart enough to ask, I guess. I don't know. So the question came up, what do you do when you have people who obviously have no love for God, who have an accident or an incident or somebody's ill, and they cry out to God for healing, and Something supernatural happens, and the person is healed, but there is no commensurate response on the part of the individuals. Their lives do not change. And I remember my brother thought of it this way, and I think he was on to something. This is nothing but the mercy of God. God will often look at people in horrible situations and will show them mercy. Now, it may not be enough mercy to save them, but it's enough mercy to alleviate their suffering, and they will be accountable for having received that mercy, but never having bothered to pursue or think about or repent toward that God who showed them that mercy. My friends, do you understand how frightening a thing it would be to have been a recipient of the kindness of the Lord and yet never, ever give thanks nor be brought to repentance. God's goodness shows in grace and mercy and even in suffering, I believe, and providential love. You know, think of it this way if you think about the Lord. R.C. Sproul, I think, hits on something here. When he talks about in the book of James, the first chapter, James will use this terminology. He said, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. You remember that from chapter 1 of James? And he says it this way, in whom there is no shadow of turning. Now, that's a peculiar phrasing, isn't it? And yet, is that not what we see? We, we ourselves are not sources of light, right? But when light strikes us, we cast a shadow. And depending on which way we turn, the shadow changes in shape, changes in position. In God, there is no shadow of turning. For one, God never changes. Secondly, God is always light. But out of that, we see this glorious immutability, this unchangeable being that is a reference to God's character. Not only is God altogether good, 
He is consistently good. He doesn't know how to be anything but good. God's goodness is not because he obeys some cosmic law outside of himself. God's goodness is himself. He cannot be or act in any way except good. He defines goodness. Now, why does that matter? Because, my friend, for you and I in this fallen world, there's a lot of things that happen that are not good. So how do we view that? Is it that God has lied to us? Is it when bad things happen, God actually isn't good? Or is it that God's good, but he's just flat run out of power? There's only so much he can do, and this whole thing's gotten out of hand. It's too big for him to manage. Is that the answer? Well, it's certainly not how Scripture tells us to think about it. Certainly Job doesn't see it that way. How does Job see it? Shall we accept good from the hand of God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin nor foolishly charge God. Or if you take a moment to trace that golden chain in the book of Romans in the 8th chapter as you see that declaration, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? What's the term? Good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes to that, for those he called, right? He predestined, he called, he called, he justified, he justified, he glorified. Hmm. And then he knows somebody's going to raise the question, but, 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 (laughs) there's bad things that happen. There's trouble How do I know that the Lord isn't going to just give up? What shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation? Trials? Struggles? How does he respond to this? As you see his logic in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, my friend, is the goodness of God on display even in our suffering. Because out of that bad, he shall do good. Because he is sovereign, yes. But because he is essentially good. God's goodness is in general all of the moral qualities which prompt his people to call him perfect and in particular his generosity which moves them to call him merciful and gracious and to speak of his love. This love is commended toward us in at least four ways. First, the majesty and glory of the lover. God himself loves us. Secondly, the poverty and unworthiness of the ones loved. Sinners, he doesn't have to love us. Third, the worth of him in whom we are loved. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Christ Jesus. And the multitude and excellence of the gifts that come from this love. Christian, behold the goodness of your God. Yes, moral excellence, all morality defined in Him. But out of that goodness, mercy, grace, kindness, long-suffering. This is your heavenly Father. This is your triune God. Listen to the words of Wesley. Let me draw this to a close. O God, my hope, my heavenly rest, my all of happiness below, grant my importunate request. To me, to me, thy goodness show. Thy beatific face display the brightness of eternal day. Before my faith's enlightened eyes make all thy gracious goodness pass. Thy goodness is the sight I prize. O may I see thy smiling face, thy nature in my soul proclaim, reveal thy love, thy glorious Would you see the glory of God? Then see the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, You are our good and faithful and kind-hearted God. You have shown yourself as he who has mercy on whom he has mercy. May we never think that for a moment we can wrest this from you or bribe you to receive it. May we see the freeness of your great goodness and love and compassion, your gentleness, your kindness. May we who have received mercy always and ever declare our God is good. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand down and sing in response to his word.
is our hope in life and death. Christ alone, Christ alone, what is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong, who holds our days within his hand, who comes apart from his command, and what will keep us to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing.
Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you, God, for allowing us to come into your house, Lord, to worship you. And God, we thank you most.